Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. This podcast brings you excerpted coverage of a recent panel discussion, with some debate mixed in, about an emerging field of research that studies the microbiome, the vast colonies of bacteria that colonize the human body, and its relation to human health. The panel speakers are Dr. Martin Blazer, Director of the Human Microbiome Program at the NYU School of Medicine, Dr. Maria Gloria dominguez Bayo, Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Medical Center, and Dr. Lawrence Brent, Professor of Medicine and Surgery at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. The moderator is Christine Gorman, Senior Editor in Charge of Health and Medicine Features for Scientific American. Ms. Gormans will be the first voice you'll hear, followed by Dr. Blazer, then Dr. dominguez Bayo, followed by Dr. Brandt. Enjoy! So I'd like to begin uh, with a question to all the panelists. Um, we've known about bacteria in our gut, in, on our skin, elsewhere. We talk about gut flora and fauna, the commensal bacteria. Um, some would say all the way back to the 1880s. Why are we hearing so much about it now? It's interesting. We now know that most of the cells in the body are bacteria. But if you think about the ancients, they, they didn't really have a concept of this. And uh, in the 17th century, von Leeuwenhoek discovered the microscope, invented the microscope. And he could see, uh, he could see these little animacules, thank you, uh, 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 in, in the mouth and uh, in, in the material between his teeth. And then in the 19th century, bacteriology, the, the science of bacteriology began, uh, led by Pasteur. Mm -hmm. And Pasteur understood about the, the, the normal organisms, which were called the normal flora, uh, and, and he felt that they were uh, essential for health. And in the late 19th century, uh, there was another giant, Metchnikoff, who's considered one of the fathers of immunology. And he felt that the that these organisms were competitors and were fighting with us. Uh, so there was this uh, controversy about what was the role of the normal flora, but uh, it was mostly a black box. Uh, many of the organisms could not be grown in culture, uh, as, as is the basis of bacteriology, because even today we don't understand their growth requirements. They're extremely well adapted for their host, but we don't we can't we we can't grow many of the organisms uh, and so it was it was mysterious and really progressing in the 30s the 40s the 50s people began understanding and and they sometimes the the normal flora would break through and cause disease bloodstream infections and so a science of anaerobic bacteriology was developed uh, dr sydney feingold in los angeles was one of the was one of the real leaders in that field. Uh, and, uh, and then in the last 20 years uh, came DNA and sequencing. And that opened the whole thing up. You don't have to grow the bacteria. You, you can just break open the cells and, and uh, extract the DNA and then ask what's, what's the sequence. And from the sequence, you can identify uh, what it is. So. We have made efforts in the last decade uh, to sequence the human genome. And we thought the human genes would tell us our, all our story. And what was surprising to everybody, uh, with the upcoming of the high throughput sequencing uh, of DNA, 
we were very surprised to find out that we have more bacterial cells than homo sapiens cells on our body. And that was striking to, to everybody. Uh, that was uh, allowed by the new technology, uh, which made us see the big diversity, the, the, um, the amount of diversity that we didn't even imagine. So from then, uh, we learned that we can only culture about 1% of the bacteria that are in a given niche. Uh, and I think that's what became surprising to everybody, and it's relatively recent. And after that, we have been discovering that there are many diseases associated to the microbiota. And there is, a, although we have solved many infectious diseases uh, using antibiotics, we are learning now that by using nonspecific uh, drugs, we are killing good bacteria from our body, and that's linked to some of the modern epidemics. Mm -hmm. Don't forget, I'm, I'm a practicing gastroenterologist. And so my uh, approach to this was uh, looking at uh, stool and the bacteria in stool as really the bad guys. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it wasn't until probably uh, 19... Oh, 98, 99, uh, that I thought I had an original idea. Uh, but, you know, it was really ignorance of what had been done before. Uh, that maybe uh, there was more to the stool being a source of goodness uh, when I had a particular patient who... Uh, had uh, only troubles since her good health was interrupted by a course of antibiotics given for sinusitis. And ever since having gotten that uh, course of antibiotics, her life was miserable. And she was um, plagued uh, by this recurrent infection with C. difficile. Now, I had treated C. difficile before with antibiotics, but Antibiotics was ruining this patient's life. So at that time, she said to me, can't you think of something that you could possibly do uh, that would be other than more antibiotics and more antibiotics? And I said, well, you know, before you took your antibiotics, you were a healthy person. So obviously the antibiotics knocked out something, some balance in your gut that made you incapable of repairing the damage yourself. I said, before you took the antibiotics, you probably had the same bacterial population as did that good-looking guy who's sitting next to you today who you've been with for 50 years. I said, why don't we take some of his stool and put it in you and give you back what you had before you took the antibiotics? And she said, Wow, that sounds like a great idea. I did it on Friday. And at 10 o'clock on Friday, at night, a patient called me at home. said, I just want to let you know that I haven't felt this good in six months. It took that little time. That wasn't exactly the question you asked of why are we hearing so much about it. Mm -hmm. But I published that report because it was striking. And I think that that might have started a little stone downhill which picked up a lot of momentum and 
lot of people saw it and other people did it. And people had done it before, but it hadn't caught on. It wasn't as popular. So who's in charge, the bugs or us? Both. There is a dialogue. We have evolved with them. So the first form of life on Earth was bacteria. So whatever came after had to deal with bacteria, cope with bacteria, associated with bacteria. Our own cells are a product of a, of a synthesis of a bacterial cell with another cell. So our mitochondria are of bacterial origin. And in plants, the chloroplasts are of bacterial origin. So that's an example of the fusion of two forms of life, and that's the, uh, the theory that is uh, accepted now. And any, anybody evolving had to cope, deal, and co-evolve with bacteria. So we have, none of our ancestors had ever existed without bacteria. Mm-hmm. And may part of the success of larger organisms like plants and animals is that we've learned how to harness bacteria to work with us. Uh, so that they can do some of our metabolic work and our immune work, and we feed them and clothe them. So what are some of the things that basically we can't do, that we've sort of outsourced to the bacteria, or that we've, we've uh, taken advantage of what the bacteria can do? What are some things that, that the bacteria do for us? Vitamin B12, for example. Our bacteria produce it for us. Digestion of plant fibers. Our bacteria do it for us. About uh, 20% of the, uh, um, the fiber that uh, humans eat in general uh, goes unclaimed uh, into the colon. It's, not, it, it's lost. But then the bacteria uh, in the colon actually reclaim it for us and convert it into digestible, utilizable energy products. So it's a good thing that we have the bacteria in our colon. I want to bring up another area, and that's immunity. Um, because uh, in, a, in the most simplistic way, we can think of, of bacteria or germs as being good guys or bad. And by and large, the ones that we have co-evolved with uh, are the good guys. There are lots of exceptions, and there are uh, situations in which the good guys can become bad guys. But then there are pathogens, uh, organisms that make a living by causing disease, whether it's tuberculosis or salmonella or cholera or shigella. And for uh, at, at least 80 years, it's been clear that the good guys help us fight the bad guys. And some very wonderful work was done in the 1950s, uh, shortly after the advent of antibiotics, Uh, where a group of investigators at the University of Chicago uh, did the simple experiment of of giving salmonella to a mouse. And and if they gave a certain strain, they found uh, that the mouse had some resistance to the salmonella, and it would take 100,000 salmonella to kill the mouse. And then, in a parallel experiment, they gave the mouse antibiotics that uh, uh, would any number of different antibiotics, and they stopped the antibiotics, and they gave the mouse salmonella. And in those experiments, sometimes the mouse was killed by as few as 10 salmonella. So many orders of magnitude. And that be, that was one way that we began to understand that the 
the um, the intactness of the of the normal uh, microbiota uh, provides important immunity against uh, acquired organisms. So you have talked about how the um, bacteria help us. What do the bacteria get out of it, Maria Gloria? Well, they have a nice house, warm, uh, a constant environment. We are homeotherms, so we provide we provide food, the food we eat, but also some bacteria live on our own epithelial cells. Um, I wanted to add to Marty's comment that, so we are mammals, and mammals are characterized for drinking milk, uh, not, um, not forming the next generation in eggs, but in a mother in the, in the womb, and for being born through a birth canal that is heavily inoculated with lactic acid bacteria. And, and we know now that during the last trimester of pregnancy, the maternal microbiota changes, both in the intestine and in the vagina. And more lactobacillus and lactic acid grow, uh, more than normal uh, women non-pregnant. So it seems that the mom prepares the inoculum for the baby. The inoculum is the bacteria that are um, given to uh, a non-colonized object or subject. So, and we think that's very important and it's very highly adaptive in mammals. Because all mammals have to come to the world after passing a canal that, is, that has a lot of lactic acid uh, users. And then drink milk. So, now we are learning a lot of how, what, what are we getting out of doing C-sections, for example? What happens to those babies do, that don't cross that uh, birth canal? And uh, it, it, we are, it's a new, it's new information that we are obtaining from studies, but we, we think it, it, there are consequences. Um, animals are formed and are, and are born with a very naive immune system. So whatever bacteria they, their immune system sees first are the initial educators of the immune system of, of that individual. So if we, in a, in a C-section born baby, the initial colonizers are not the natural ones, the ones that have evolved in mammals to be seen by the immune system and which usually send the signal of we are the good guys, don't attack me. Uh, because the immune system of babies have to learn who are the good guys and tolerate them, tolerate our microbiota, but attack when it's necessary. So microbes play, play a, a particularly important role in mammals. I, I, this is a good time to introduce the uh, hygiene hypothesis. Uh, basically, when most of us grew up, uh, we were told that it's better to be clean than dirty. And that concept, like many concepts in medicine, uh, might not be so true. Uh, I think uh, it's starting to, believe, to be believed now that uh, the best thing one can have when growing up is a dirty older brother. Because as we try to really grow up clean, we sort of lose over generations um, our exposure 
to bacteria and growing up in constant contact with bacteria. And as an example, that's one of the beliefs now that uh, as we lose our exposure, as we lose our exposure to the bacteria, as we lose our exposure to our old friends, we now become susceptible to new diseases that heretofore we didn't get. And that may be one of the reasons why, for example, there are so many allergic disorders today. Uh, and why we are so susceptible to diseases today that we weren't susceptible to in the past. Uh, and bacteria are not all bad. In fact, bacteria are probably more our friends than we thought before. It's a new concept. Bacteria aren't necessarily bad. Bacteria are probably good. And your microbiota probably are a major determinant for your state of health, your state of well-being, and your state of functioning for many of your daily functions. What's the significance of that? I think that's something that we're going to have to think about. What type of bacteria do we have, and what are the consequences of the type of bacteria that we have? We know that the microbiota are associated with the metabolic syndrome and diabetes and perhaps obesity, but they're also associated with mood and perhaps anxiety disorders and neuromuscular disorders and atherosclerotic disorders. So we're starting to think of how bacteria alter our metabolic processes, how bacteria participate in our degenerative disorders, how bacteria participate in the way we function. So that's another new kind of a concept. Marty, you had something you wanted to say. Well, <clears throat> every good panel needs controversy. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to say that uh, although I agreed with many things that Larry said, I didn't agree with everything. I, wa I want to make a distinction uh, about this, about the hygiene hypothesis which I think, if true, may, may just be minor. I, I want to offer a different hypothesis that's similar but is not identical, and that's the disappearing microbiota hypothesis. And in some ways, you stated that. And the idea is that the organisms that we have co-evolved with since forever uh, are important to us, in fact, especially if we acquire them very early in life. But if we no longer acquire them, then uh, uh, our microbiota is different, and, and there are a variety of different consequences. Now, that's different from the hygiene hypothesis, which is often interpreted as being about being dirty, playing in the soil, eating dirt, having pets, uh, lots of farm animals. Um, it's possible that those organisms have importance to us, um, but at present, I don't believe so. I think that their effect is small because the organisms in dirt are evolved for soil, not evolved for us. They don't survive very well or long in us. Uh, for example, many of the probiotics that are, on, that are widely available of many different kinds 
uh, if you take a huge culture of probiotic, uh, you will find it in the intestinal tract in the stool of a person that day, but you won't find it the next day because it's gone because the, 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 the normal organisms have, have thrown it out. They, it can't compete with the normals. So I, I'm much more interested in uh, what Larry called the old friends or the, what I consider the disappeared microbes uh, that, um, that have an effect on our physiology. I just want to ma marry the two things. Mm -hmm. I think my belief is that our own microbes that have co-evolved with humans are training the immune system to tell the immune system we are the good guys, but the dust and the dirt also play a role in educating the immune system uh, who has to learn to differentiate the non-self. So our microbes are self, is our other genome that we have on us playing functions and the immune system has to tolerate whereas the other, the environmental ones also play a role exposing, you know, in, the, in, a, in our exposure by helping the immune system to learn who is the non-self. So I, I think both are, but in order to have a kid that tolerates the dirt and, and is resistant to infections, he has to have a good uh, founder microbiome, a human uh, set of microbes. You, you all have kind of danced around this a little bit, talking about cesarean sections, talking about antibiotics, but why are the um, various bacteria disappearing? And secondly, I don't think any of us would want to get rid of antibiotics or cesarean sections for that matter. I mean, I, they do play an important role. Can I just say a fact before we discuss why are disappearing? I just want to, to tell you that we know already that U.S. Uh, people, Americans, specifically in a study made in Colorado, we have half of the diversity than that diversity found in Amerindians in the Amazon jungle, and I'm talking about the colon and the skin. In the mouth, it's less so. And uh, if we compare ourselves also with Africans living uh, traditional lifestyles. So if we compare a, a hunter-gatherer microbiota with an American, and I'm talking about the healthiest state in the U.S., which is Colorado, with the least obesity, people do a lot of exercise. The Colorado people uh, have lost about half of the colon diversity and has substantially less diversity in the skin and in less degree in the mouth. So that's, that's a fact that we know. You asked, what do we do for the microbes? Gloria mentioned that the answer is we give them a very nice place to live. In fact, it's so nice that certain microbes have nowhere else to live but in people. They're obligate uh, uh, parasites or, or symbionts of us. And so if they're obligate, it means that when you die, they die, unless they've passed on to somebody else. Uh, especially to the next generation. So there's a big bottleneck. Uh, uh, a person is full of trillions of organisms. The baby is born with zero organisms, and it, it has to uh, acquire organisms. And those organisms, uh, um, they have to figure out how can they go get to the next generation. And, and it, that's, that's the crux 
uh, and, and maybe why there's so much disappearance is that uh, th there's a bottleneck there, and, and we have made it harder. But, you know, I don't think that anybody wants to get rid of cesarean sections or antibiotics. What we're starting to do is look at something that we took for granted for a long period of time and now analyze the consequences of those actions so that antibiotics are, are a better example because they're so indiscriminately used. And that's not a good thing. And pediatricians are starting to learn now that you don't have to give antibiotics for every single nose drip or earache that a, uh, an infant or a child has, and that if you give antibiotics, uh, there are consequences to that. When you take a, a course of antibiotics, that knocks out a lot of your residential bacteria. And those residential bacteria don't come back immediately when you complete that course. It may take three months for that bacterial population to reestablish its normal diversity and richness. So antibiotics can do damage that may be transient or could be very long term. And I think we're coming to the realization that that can't continue because there are consequences that may por por uh, be portrayed 10 years or 20 years down the line with a change in your metabolic machinery, if you will. And maybe diseases that you're going to get that ordinarily you wouldn't have gotten. Um, the other comment I wanted to do is that maybe we know already that sometimes we never recover bacteria that are lost because there are windows in childhood which close with age. And if you don't acquire, for example, H. pylori when you are young, you will never acquire it after 20. And some, some work by uh, Redman in Stanford, they have shown that we quite, we never recover 100% after an antibiotic uh, treatment. And if you impact, as, as you mentioned, uh, compound effects uh, cause extinctions. Marty. So I, I want to introduce another concept, um, which is the concept of risk. And so we know that there are certain diseases that have been getting much more common in recent years. Uh, as Larry mentioned, allergies, obesity, asthma, type 1 diabetes, these diseases have, have gone up uh, dramatically. Although obesity is common, uh, some of the others are, are more rare. And the concept uh, that's important is that, you know, if somebody is born by C-section, it doesn't mean that they're doomed. Uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, most of the time everyone does pretty well. But, uh, but risk can compound, and, and, and if you, sometimes if you add 2 plus 2, it can equal 12. Um, and uh, we, all, we know, uh, a, a scientifically literate audience like this knows that smoking is a risk factor for lung cancer. Sometimes we say that smoking causes lung cancer, but it's actually a risk factor because there are many people who smoke who never get lung cancer. There are people who get lung cancer who never have smoked, but if you smoke, you increase the risk. And there's more and more evidence that these early life exposures, like C-section or early life antibiotics, when you follow the children in epidemiologic studies, the risk that they will develop diseases, such as uh, with C-section, there have now been three studies, including one we participated in, that showed that these children are more likely to be obese 
when they're 7 or 15 years old, or, or more likely to have juvenile diabetes, or more likely to have celiac disease, or early life antibiotics, those children are more likely to develop asthma. So it's not that it's all or none, but it's, it's an increasing risk and possibly a compounding of risk. So now what do we do? Is, should we all be buying organic and drinking, eating lots of yogurt? And uh, uh, what? What should we do? Well, you know, I think that um, we're just starting on this journey now. And we're just starting to learn about it. So this is certainly not a time to make rules. It's a time to observe uh, and see what we do and uh, gather data and make intelligent, rational decisions as we've assembled enough data to enable us to do so. I certainly wouldn't panic about anything. What do you want everyone here to know? Uh, I'm very interested in the issue of antibiotics. The average child in the United States gets three courses of antibiotics in the first two years of life. By the time they're 10, they have had more than 10 courses of antibiotics. There's a pretty broad consensus that that's not necessary because many of the infections that are being treated aren't even bacterial infections. And so I think that going forward, the science that has to be done is that we need to have better diagnostics that will allow us to differentiate between viral infections and bacterial infections. And if someone has a bacterial infection, which organism is it? And, and use the new knowledge of genomics to develop new drugs that will target that organ, organism and not have a lot of collateral effects. So that's a, that's a research frontier. Probably when children take necessary antibiotics, we will give them probiotics at the same time, except that we don't know what they are yet. But it, it, we could, there, there could be an, an argument uh, in that favor. And probably, I, I predicted about 15 years ago, and I, I'm still predicting, although it may not happen in my lifetime, uh, that we're going to start giving back some of those disappeared organisms, uh, like the helicobacters and the oxalobacters, back to kids, just as we give kids childhood vaccines, we're going to restore the disappeared organisms. So let me just push back a little bit on helicobacter. Haven't I heard that that's also a cause of ulcers? It is. Uh, helicobacter has uh, late in life cost, uh, ulcers, uh, gastric cancer. Mm -hmm. It also has uh, the, uh, early life benefit. Uh, in terms of reflux disease uh, and asthma and, and probably some other early life benefits as well. It's, the story isn't, as Larry said, we're just at the beginning. Uh, so it may be that if we want to maximize health, we'll give helicobacter to kids and eradicate it from adults when they're 30 or 40. Okay. Um, summary comments, Maria Gloria. So I think my the message I would like to deliver is we, we have to think in terms of how, how did we evolve. And if we, if we take that into account, we, we probably can take better decisions. You know, eat natural diets, diminish, if possible, uh, processed foods, and avoid impacts when they are not necessary. If you have a, if you have a horrible infection, then the cost is, you know, is, you pay the price because it's worth. Uh, to have antibiotics, but if it's not necessary, then avoid it. I got into the uh, business of um, fecal microbiota transplant or stool transplant 
about um, 15 years ago. And the concept was to restore a bacterial population that was working and replace one that wasn't working. And it wasn't working in protecting us against this infection that I spoke about. And we're not going to be doing this for much longer, maybe another three years, I would imagine, because when the scientists, uh, such as Marty and Maria, jump in and help us to see what stool is and what the bacteria and what the viruses, what the other living creatures in stool are, and which ones are needed for which diseases and which functions, we won't need the three to 5,000 species of bacteria in stool. We may need a couple, but we don't know which ones at this time. So we need a lot of study. We need a lot of data in different diseases and so forth. You know, I've cured C. difficile with one fecal transplant. Okay, so I gave that patient three or 5,000 different types of bacteria. Well, uh, the same cure has been done with, in one study, 33 strains of bacteria. And at the recent American College of Gastroenterology, one patient has been cured of C. difficile by the use of one species of bacteria, three strains of that one species of bacteria. The name of the bacteria was Bacteroides. They gave three different types of Bacteroides to this patient, cured the disease that up until that point was resistant to antibiotics over numerous uh, courses of therapy. So you could say, well, Bacteroides can cure C. diff. I'm not sure that's true, but in that one patient it was true. Well, now, what can cure Crohn's disease? And what can cure ulcerative colitis? And what can cure irritable bowel syndrome? Can they, those be cured? Can, those be, can the complexion of the disease be altered by fecal transplantation or when we really know the populations of bacteria by the implantation of just a few bacteria, but the right bacteria. And I foresee in the future a person walking into a health care giver's office and in addition to being, to being asked for a blood sample for different tests, that patient will be asked for a stool sample. And a determination of what bacteria are present in that patient's stool will be made. And then the patient will be given a recommendation. This is the diet I think you should be on. And for the disease that you have, these are the bacterial pills that I think you should take. And if we do that, maybe you can avoid developing this disease in your future. So... I think we're really at the beginning of this whole process. We need a lot of studies. We need a lot of data. And I think it's a really exciting time because the way we practice medicine is going to change. And this is really a whole new uh, paradigm. Uh, Hippocrates once said that 
you know, all disease begins with the bacteria uh, within the gut. I think if he were alive today, he would probably say that health is maintained by the bacteria within the gut. We just have to know which bacteria do what. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org and follow us on social media. This will be the last Science in the City podcast of 2013. On behalf of the Academy, I'd like to wish everyone listening a very happy new year. I hope you'll join us in 2014 for more exciting science. Thanks for listening.